Amen. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles open to the book of Isaiah, <clears throat> we are going to start our 66th chapter trek. With an introduction to Isaiah, hopefully we'll get the first nine verses. Prophecies like this merit an introduction. At the end, I'll close, hopefully, with a quote from Ecclesiastes. But I would be, I am very uncomfortable with the thought of not having the Bible knowledge that God has allowed me to accumulate over the last few decades. And I say that to say that it counts. Bible study counts. It matters. It's not a magic wand. It uh, is a shield. It is a sword. It is a helmet. It is the armor of Christ. All of that comes from the Word of God. And if you ever doubt how important it is, your knowledge of the Scripture, think of those places that have no knowledge of the Bible. And I would add to that, it makes it difficult, more difficult, for the devil to bamboozle you if you have a knowledge of the Word. Not enough to only have the knowledge of the Word, but without it, you're a sitting duck. I'd, I'd like to start this introduction off with a quote from the Gospel according to Luke. In the fourth chapter we read, And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, if you're not a student of the scripture and you come to the gospel of Luke and you read that, it doesn't have the same meaning if, as opposed to someone who knows what Isaiah is all about from beginning to end. And it's not very difficult. I'll give a brief outline of what the book is about soon. But the first recorded sermon of our Lord when he was on earth was not preached from Genesis or Psalms or any other book that you might expect it to, uh, for him to have preached from. It was Isaiah. It was from the scroll of Isaiah, our chapter 61, that great scroll of righteousness and redemption. Righteousness is God saying, this is the right way. Redemption says, you couldn't do it the right way. So you had to be redeemed. And all of that is captured in the gospel, you could say, of Isaiah. It is the good news of the Old Testament. God, in the first 35 chapters, this is the righteousness, and you failed. And then with a brief intermission of uh, a narrative of history, which is imperative, we'll get to that maybe, uh, then comes the redemption. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, and then the story of Messiah really flashes to the, to the front. And so going back to the Gospel of Luke, we need to take the context of what is going on. It tells the story. I won't need to comment much. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It wasn't gone for good. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. 
and he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh. They expected him to complete Isaiah's last sentence. They expected him to continue to read, and the day of vengeance of our God, but he does not read that part. He stopped right before it to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh. They wanted Messiah to strike with wrath those Gentile dogs of Rome. Instead, he chose the book, he closed the book, and returned it to the synagogue custodian. And then he sat down. The silence that was there the whole time, as he rolls the scroll, as he hands it away, as he makes movement to his seat, silence. Everyone is expecting comment from him. That day of wrath that is going to come, that kind of thing had not come yet. He had not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have salvation. And it still has not come after all these years, but it is coming. But then he broke the silence with words that exploded like a bomb. If you can imagine being a Jewish in Israel at that time in history, despising the Gentiles and even more the Roman Gentiles, and to have someone bring up that section of Scripture and stop short of the, their punchline. It wasn't God's punchline. God has punchlines all over the place. And they were going to have to learn to conform to that, which many of them did not. And so he breaks the silence with these words. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, what is fulfilled? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. He has sent me. Jesus was saying, I am your Messiah. There was no ambiguity to it. This is it. I am him. Straight out. And he, the village carpenter, had no right to make such an announcement in their eyes. That he was Yahweh's chosen one. In distinction of everybody else. Above David. Above Abraham. The one whom Yahweh had written these words some 700 years earlier were now being embraced by him. And they were moved by the preaching and the hope that Isaiah gave. Just for a little bit of time. Then unbelief robbed them and they hardened their hearts. The admiration nosedived into anger and their anger into violence. A murderous mob was born in church. They're going to kill him for this. From the scroll of Isaiah, Jesus declared, again, without any confusion, that he is Messiah. He proclaimed his Messiahship. Well, we call him the Christ. 
which means he is the Messiah. It's just a Greek word for the Jewish word Messiah. Isaiah, he wrote more of the coming of Jesus as Messiah, which they, of course, did not understand his name would be Jesus until the revelation unfolded in the days of Joseph and Mary. But Isaiah wrote more about the coming Messiah than any other Old Testament prophet. He is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. His entire prophecy was among the Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1947, the oldest group of Old Testament manuscripts ever found, and found in an earthen vessel. Now here's the connection that you make if you have the Spirit of God. You might miss it if you don't. And if you miss it, it doesn't mean you, you're not born again and you don't have the Spirit. But here's the verse. Remember, they found the scroll in an earthen vessel. That scroll, more than any other Old Testament document, proclaimed Christ and the liberty that he brings to the soul. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, Paul, of course, is he talking about the body and the Holy Spirit? And we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're just clay. And yet, yet, does it not also fit the discovery of this word from God to man, sort of an, you know, God accentuates the point. It's an exclamation mark. We had the scripture before the scrolls in Quran were found. We had the we we understood. We didn't need them. But God says, I'm going to give them to you anyway. Sort of a bonus. This man, Isaiah, he saw again some seven hundred years before Christ. He saw the glory of Christ. Well, how do we know that? Jesus tells us right out. John chapter 12, verse 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Well, John adds that, of course. Jesus was the one that Isaiah saw when he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his glory filled the temple, the train of his robe. Filled. It was just this magnificent moment in the life of Isaiah. And he wrote it down so we could all get a piece of it. And he wrote so much more. And you think about the quotations we have from the book of Isaiah. I had a bunch, you know, maybe I'll just quote a few of them. And it just got out of hand. I said, I can't, can't do that. Therefore, Jesus Christ, Yahweh of the Old Testament, I want to hear from the man who heard from God and saw his glory. And that's why we don't reduce and say, ah, yeah, it's just the Old Testament. It's not, it's not the New Testament. No, it's not the New Testament. It's equal with. It's all God's word. It's what you do with it that matters very much to God, to yourself, and to others. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God <clears throat> stands forever. And that's what we're seeing. <clears throat> Pardon me. That's what we are seeing. Well, we can still have a little bit more introduction, then we'll hit the verses. Because this prophet Isaiah spent his whole life under the shadow of death, which would have been Assyria. 
He never knew a time in his life where the menace of Assyria was not threatening to come and take them all away as slaves, kill, pillage, loot. He exercised his ministry exclusively in the borders of Judah. Jerusalem's part of that. Jerusalem is within Judah. He preached, he prophesied to her correction and her comfort. And that's critical because when we preach against sin, hopefully we have also the opportunity to preach the solution and not just the condemnation. And the prophets were notorious. They, they, the prophets had so much hope for the future. They spoke so much about the millennial reign of Messiah, the kingdom age. To them, the kingdom age was something that they held up like we hold up the rapture. We look forward to getting away from the curse. And both the rapture and the millennial kingdom offer those things to those who have been born before the millennial age and before the rapture. And so he preached his preaching, his prophecies, his walk with God. These things validated his public ministry. The people knew he was a prophet. There was no question the first 35 chapters confirm that God was reaching out to a backslidden and apostate people, but there was a remnant within. And at every opportunity, God gave the people a chance to turn to him, but they neglected and rejected it enough to bring on themselves consequence. Well, not much different from the time we live in. There is a significant difference between Isaiah chapter 1, as we know it, through chapter 35, and chapters 40 through 66. This is a big difference. If you read the two, you say, this two different people write this? In fact, a lot of, I think, very short-sighted commentators suggest, well, there are actually, you know, one book named Isaiah, but different authors. No one man could have done this. Well, when Christ quotes from the earlier section in the New Testament, he says, the prophet Isaiah said. And then when he quotes the latter verses from Isaiah, he says, the prophet Isaiah said. He doesn't say, well, Leonard also said, who also wrote. And so I go with Jesus and not uh, these guys who overthink. They, some of them mean well, some of them don't. They tried that with Daniel, too. Well, nobody could have prophesied these things. Well, that's the meaning of prophesy, you nitwit. I mean, a prophecy is telling the future. It's spiritual. It's miraculous. And so, you know, to say, well, I don't believe in miracles. That's a miracle. It's a miracle. Somebody could be so blind. Where does that come from? Because you think, you look up and you see the sun in the sky, and you say, why does this thing not eat us? Something must be holding it in place, in check. Well, anyway, back to this fabulous story of Isaiah the prophet. As I mentioned, there's this brief historical narrative. And the reason why you get this break between the condemnations, the righteousness, and then the Messiah and the redemption, the reason why we have this little piece in the middle is because... The nation almost perished. But for this little time period, Assyria was there at the gates of Jerusalem. And God wanted to show, tell his people, I am the one that beat them back. 
You didn't do it. It wasn't by mistake. I did this. And so it is a very big deal because there would have been no, that would have been it for everything. We would be not be here tonight if it weren't for that little piece of history between chapters 36 and 39. It is a big deal. Everything in your Bible is a big deal. And if you don't yet see that, it doesn't mean it's not there. It's just you don't see it yet. That's when you come to me. And if I don't know, I'll confuse you enough to make you think that you should have known, and I know, and you don't, and you'll be happy with that. Anyway, let's summarize the outline of this book. We can just divide it into three parts. You could do it different ways, but I like this way. It's, it's, it's the better way. There's the prophetic section of Israel and Gentiles. That's the nation's. Kind of heavy-duty reading, and hopefully when we get there, we'll skim over much of that. And there we find out what's going to happen to Assyria and some of the other nations. That's prophetic. Then there's the historic interlude that I mentioned with King Hezekiah and the Assyrians coming in. We covered that in Kings. And finally, we have the last um, 27 chapters, which are Messianic, especially so, regarding the deliverance of Israel and the surviving remnant, and I've used that word remnant already, and it's a significant word to the Jewish prophets. They, that was a doctrine to them, and it should be to us. These are the righteous survivors. And that will, we'll get some of that, I think, in verse 7. And so Isaiah, he preaches the severity of God and he preaches the solution of God and we should be doing it the same way because Christ did it that way. Paul, Peter, they all did it that way because that is the right way. And Satan hates it so. So now, uh, well, well, here's another interesting thing I'd like to bring up. This writing style of Isaiah has no rival. He was well-educated, plugged in. Probably he may have been uh, part of the royal line. Uh, it gets a little deep and not that necessary, but his the versatility of expression, how he phrases things, uh, comes at the same thing from a different angle. The brilliance in his imagery that he uses, uh, just a rich vocabulary. And uh, so here he has a range, and you have to appreciate uh, those scholars that put these numbers together for us. All I have to do is come up and read them instead of count them. But he has 2,186 different words in the Hebrew. If you don't believe me, you go count it and get back to me. Psalms has 2,170. Uh, Isaiah, 2,186. And so there he beat him by 16 words. Jeremiah has 1,653. You read Jeremiah, you think he has 20,000. <laughs> and Ezekiel, 1,535. And so, not that those men were less intelligent, not at all, but just to, to, to show you this, when it's sort of like when, when God said, hmm, I need somebody to do something different, announcing Messiah. And he found it in this man, Isaiah. Well, now we look at verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah in, and Jerusalem. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, when he says the vision, uh, 
it refers to truth disclosed by God. He is not using it in the strict sense that every time God spoke to him, he was sort of in a trance-like state, as Paul was when he saw the Macedonian you know, say, hey, come over and help us. Uh, Isaiah has some of that. He does, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That was one vision that he had. But much of this information was imparted to him, as it is to this day. And the New Testament highlights that for us. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit of God. Who cannot love that? I love that stuff. I love that God has given me a love for his word. Now, I don't always like how it ends up in life. That, that is the fight. Otherwise, there'd be no conflict. This would be heaven if all we did was walk around. I just love the Bible, and that was it. Uh, what right do I have to enjoy teaching the Bible in a country that's still free enough to teach it, where... In other places, you can't even come close to standing up in, in a public environment and, and preach the word. Well, God gives me the love for it and the orders to do it. And others have been doing it for centuries. And it has been beneficial to mankind, whether they know it or not. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. The word that he saw, not the vision. And this is part of the vision, though, under the umbrella of the vision of Isaiah. And with that comes that brilliant imagery and his use of language that I mentioned earlier. And when he says, when Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, um, he's not fooling around. And he goes on to say, thus says the Lord, and I'm telling you what he said, because he's shown it to me, and he's imparted this information. And much of his prophecies came true in his lifetime, uh, certainly not the Messianic ones and the millennial ones, but others did, and uh, the people respected him for it. <clears throat> this formal announcement is saying to the people that Yahweh is speaking through me, and the righteous loved it, the unrighteous hated it. Now, I'm not going to get in. Well, maybe I should. Uh, some of the rabbis have said, well, Isaiah was hated by Manasseh so much for not conforming to Manasseh's wickedness that um, he essentially put him in a log and saw, saw the log in two, which Hebrews alludes to it. But we don't have proof of that. And I guess I say that because some of you may be expecting me to say that. Now you can relax a little bit. But... Uh, uh, anyway, this uh, prophet is, continues here in verse 1, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Well, they are the subject. He was alive when the northern kingdom was still intact, although spiritually it was a disaster, it was dis dismantled, but physically it was still a kingdom. And he saw the Assyrians come and defeat them. He knew the prophecies of Hosea and Amos. He knew they were right, and there was nothing he could do about it. But he did a lot to stop the same thing from happening in Judah. Jeremiah will come along a hundred years later and won't be able to pull it off. 
Well, not that it was it was him, for him to do, <laughs> just a messenger of the Lord. But Jeremiah will not have the victory that Isaiah enjoyed. However, Isaiah saw the cities of Judah burned, fortified cities. Sennacherib says there were 46 of them. We have no reason to doubt that, that he, he conquered. And I'll quote that later also. But uh, he, he, this um, vision <clears throat> for Judah and Jerusalem, it's, it's over into the thousand-year reign of Christ, and much of it fulfilled. Uh, no one else has what Isaiah gives us on earth, just the Bible. You, you're not going to, I mean, just you, in the Bible you can find fragments of it or, or parts to it, but you're not going to find another book on earth that has anything like what comes from these, these prophets uh, in Scripture. And uh, in, in the days of Uzziah, he says, well, he's very young at, when Uzziah was on the throne. Uzziah, 52 years he was king. And when Uzziah died, it was, made a great impact spiritually on the prophet Isaiah. We'll get to that in chapter 6. And why would it not? He was a, still a good king. Even he made some mistakes, but he was a good king. And if you have somebody on the throne that's good for that long, and all of a sudden he's gone, it leaves a big void. What's going to happen now? Will his son, uh, who was Jotham, will he father, uh, follow his father's footsteps? Well, he did, but he, he didn't reign that long. Uh, I'll come into his time as king in a moment. But uh, Uzziah's death, a, a great spiritual impact on him, but it sort of lit the powder keg as prophets go. He just explodes with prophecies and revelations. I mean, think of the, just the Christmas story. Unto us a child is given, a son is, a son is born. Um, these things come from Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah 53. He's wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity, chastisement for our peace upon him. I mean, it's just powerful things. that uh, uh, So powerful, again, that the New Testament come, repeatedly references this prophet. Now, I'm not trying to sell, sell it to you. I'm enjoying it. And I believe that the righteous will enjoy these things. You know, you just can't think these things up in your garage and uh, just, you know, publish it as though it's, you know, a new Shakespearean play. But the span of his ministry, he was a prophet for anywhere from 60 to 65 years, give or take. I mean, that's a long time ministering the Word of God and all the things that press on you to stop ministering the Word of God. Why does he not become... You know, jaded, like uh, uh, Solomon almost did. He doesn't f completely. I mean, Solomon just gets down to a different perspective. I'm enjoying my own devotions. I'm reading Ecclesiastes, and I'm enjoying it. That's right. It's just a waste. <laughs> what if you had a guy that could, could, could spit a watermelon seed a mile? So what? So what? Even if he gets a, a, conjure, you know, a sneaker deal or something. He's still going to die. And a hundred years from now, he's just going to be, look at that, I could spit a hundred miles, you know, a hundred, whatever I said. <laughs> Not that important, right? In the end, because, all right, I've been home watching a lot of things. I, I watched everything on the, well, no, no, I, I don't ever want to say I watched everything on the internet. That would be bad. But I watched a lot of stuff. Been to a lot of countries, didn't need my passport. And just you realize in the end, it doesn't matter. 
What matters is your relationship with God. All that stuff has just gone away. You go into these little back alleys in the Philippines and in Wuhan, China, and all these other places, and you still say, at the end, what will matter is when I stand before my maker, uh, you know, then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Well, a part of that is being useful to God in this life. And these are the kind of things that help us get there. So if you're in the workplace, say you're 17, 18 years old and you're in the workplace and you're working next to somebody that's um, a Philistine, <laughs> an unbeliever. And, you know, what does Isaiah have to do with them? Well, you can say, hey, do you know anything about the prophet Isaiah? And when he says no, you can say, you're an idiot. <laughs> no, <laughs> you cannot say that. But that could start something. To have this knowledge is to be used, to be ready to be used by the Holy Spirit. Like an arrow that is sharp and ready for flight, as opposed to an arrow with a blunt tip. Well, anyway, coming back to this, it reads, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Well, Hezekiah, 52 years. His son, Jotham, 16 years. Ahaz, wicked Ahaz, 16 years. Hezekiah, 29 years. Of course, he was one of the best. Um, he was king. The northern kingdom was lost. And then into the reign of Manasseh's 55-year reign. Much of it was just evil, but in the end, he gets saved. And we should root for him, uh, even though he did irreparable damage, which sobers everyone up. Now, before Isaiah, there were other writing prophets, because there were the prophets that performed and didn't write, like Elijah, Elisha. They just, you know, blew out miracles. You know, I mean, how can you, you know, if I'm a man of God, let lightning come down and cook you. And it did, twice. And <laughs> finger was on the button the third time. Anyway... Joel, Jonah, Hosea, Amos, and perhaps Obadiah had written by this time. Uh, the contemporaries with him, Micah for sure, in, in the south. Well, <clears throat> he was warning them that uh, time is running out. Verse 2 now. Listen, or hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Oh, wonderful. Who doesn't love that? Well, this is the war that uh, we did not volunteer for. We found ourselves in. The wickedness of Judah is what he's going to deal with. We'll close that on verse 9 when we get there for this evening. But God gets right to the point. He introduces himself, you know, Isaiah, son of Amos, during the reigns of these kings. And then he comes right out, listen, O heavens. And then he, he says, I brought up children. I've loved them, cared for them, and they turned on me. That was my reward from these children. Now, if you're a Jew in Judah, and you hear this sermon, you know what it means. You're not like, hmm, what is he saying? You, you get it right away. And he invokes heaven and earth to witness what he is about to say. Well, Moses used this figure of speech in Deuteronomy 32. 
devils and men, uh, they may not care for what God has to say. They may not side with God, but other than that, all creation sides with the Creator. Paul says that all creation moans. This life is under the curse. Everything living suffers. Uh, well, he continues here, and that's a, a cheery word, right? <laughs> I don't mean it that way. It's just a fact. And so we find out, well, what's my role in the midst of all this? For Yahweh has spoken. Well, Isaiah knew his source, and he wanted everyone else to know. He says, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. And God knows this is profoundly ridiculous, a display of injustice in this world. He is not oblivious to it. It takes time to fight these things out. We want the one-punch knockout in the first two seconds of the round. And not this slugfest that we have to endure for round after round. But that, that is how it is, and that's why we admire heroes of faith. Again, when Esther says, if I die, I die, she was, you know, we just read the words. But for her, it meant horror. I mean, they're going to kill me, and they may not do it cleanly. Uh, so these folks were facing hard times also. In verse 3, he says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Well, um, <clears throat> from here to verse 15, he is um, delivering the message that he had been given about the folly and the sin of the people. This man is a prophetic battleship. And he is firing barrage after barrage with pinpoint accuracy, rebuking the behavior of the people that he lived around. And you, you listen to this and you say, what's the point? Did they get it? Oh, there wouldn't have been no, there would have never, there would have been no remnant if someone didn't get what these prophets were saying. So they had that success. They did not have the success that they wanted. Who does? And here, in verse 3, Israel refers not only to the northern kingdom, but to all of the Jewish people. And <clears throat> he's saying, the ox knows its owner, the donkey, its master's crib. An ox intuitively knows who it serves. A donkey knows who cares for it. And yet, here you have human beings unable to come to a basic conclusion, to connect the dot. To, when, we say, when I say connect the dots, I mean you come to a conclusion, to a point. That's what our doctrine is. Our doctrine is we've taken what we've learned from Scripture and we put it together in such a way we've connected the dots, we can see what it says. We can see the image. We've arrived at a valuable meaning that is supported from Scripture. These folks could care less he says, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. The people called to be the people of God did not know their place in the universe. Spiritually, dumber than animals. That's what, that's what the prophet is saying. It is exactly how it would have been received. There, in those days, there were oxen walking around and donkeys, you know, more than, than you would see in a city. And, in fact, I never, I've, in all the years I lived in New York, I never saw an ox walking down the city once. Walking down the street, hey, that's an ox. 
I could tell by the hat. Anyway, uh, even farm animals were smarter than people who turn their backs on God. Psalm 32, do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. And so the psalmist saying, don't, don't be like a dumb animal and let and God have to force you to do things. Well, the horse can want to run ahead impetuously. Mule can be stubborn. Uh, but God's people or any people expose what God has to say. Um, you tell me if this applies to the world or not. I, I was talking with someone last Sunday. Well, it was last Sunday I was here. Was last Sunday I slept in. <laughs> I did, but not on purpose. Anyway, uh, they were talking about witnessing somebody, and I so long for those days. I miss those days being in the workplace, zapping the stupidity of unbelievers about Christ. I so missed it. You know, miss it. You know, to tell somebody. Why do you say things about the Bible and you really don't know what you're talking about? Uh, do you know what the word sacredness means? Is there anything in your life that is sacred? If you, to, for a human being to live without having something sacred in their life is to be a human being that is spiritually dumb. And, uh, and I don't mean that in a sarcastic way, though I'm not extracting the sarcasm either. But it is true. Some things should be, you know what? This is something that belongs to someone greater than me, purer than I. And I need to keep my humor away from it and my flippant behavior. It is sacred. It is good for us to have things that are in our heart. Now, if someone else can trample something that's sacred to us and it doesn't take away from it. I mean, if someone wants to take my, my Bible and throw it into a fire... Uh, it's still sacred to me, and I'm not going to put my hand in there to get it. It's sacred in my heart. This was the case with Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah's scroll that King Jehoiakim uh, cut up and threw in the fire, and he said, I got another one. So anyway, but, but it, it was a sacred deal nonetheless. So verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken Yahweh. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. See, Yahweh was sacred to Isaiah, but not to the target audience. There was supposed to be a good relationship between God, the Creator, and man, the created. And so their guilt, he projects in living color right before them. Just like, you know, he's just like, here's a, here's a movie of your corruption. And it's in color, with surround sound. Each description set in contrast to what God designed man to be. God did not want men to be laden with iniquity and a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. This is not what God had in mind. It's blasphemous to charge him with it. He says, alas, sinful nation. Also, whole nations can stampede against God. Well, we saw that with Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany. Um, we, we've seen this in human history. In Exodus 19, 
God said, you shall be to me, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Well, they weren't. He says, a people laden with iniquity. Picture a donkey overloaded. Picture a picture a pickup truck. So overloaded, the front wheels come off the ground. <clears throat> this is the people with sin. They were pickup trucks so overloaded with iniquity, they couldn't even move. They're useless to God. Psalm 36, 4. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Paul writes to the church of Rome, he says, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. These chaps, they are just an abandon to evil. And they're still throwing the name of Yahweh around, though. Brood of evildoers. This is a sermon, man. This is, this is a sermon that you better make sure your audience is guilty of it. <laughs> you don't preach this to a saved congregation. So, a brood of evildoers. God called them to be Abraham's seed. Genesis 21. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. And of course, they just walked away from this. Children who are corruptors. They ruin everything. It's so pointless. That's the, one of the, such a disappointing thing about crime. It's so pointless. Not to the criminals. Not to the selfish ones. But to the victims, it's just so pointless. Uh, Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. And I would hope, hope you're into this. I hope I'm, I'm boring you. It's too late now, though, for you if you are. Uh, you are the children of Yahweh, your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to Yahweh, your God. And Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And you blew it. And it was not every single one of them, of course. Sobering. And you just hear it come off the pages. Even the, you know, you shall not do certain things because there's such a thing as, as, they are things that are to be sacred to you. Because God has called them. He has claimed them as his own. And he is pure and holy. And the New Testament comes along and says, Be you perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now you can shrug your shoulders and say, Psh, I got no shot at that. Not even going to try. That would be the way of the fool. Or you can say, Well, let me see what I can squeeze out of it. I sometimes think the pulpit should be made out of sponge. Because you try to squeeze every piece of insight from scripture from it that will be useful to people in their lives to help us be useful to God. They have forsaken Yahweh. Well, that's the opposite of following him. And this led to behavior that provoked God because they defied him. I love this quote from Job. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. What an understatement. We, we just sang the understatement song, God, I need you. What an understatement, right? It's like Job said, more than oxygen. Well, anyway, and that's not to put down the song, that's to, to just exalt the Lord. He says, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? Used to be a play. It used to be on Broadway years ago. Your arms are too short to box with God. It's just like, 
Yeah, your reach is, man, he's just going to knock you around. Uh, anyway, people live like that. So they're, um, they, they, they just resisted God, and it was their fault. They wouldn't have that change of heart. Jeremiah 2. And this is the, if anything in a sermon, if you say, you know what, the sermon's kind of boring. Okay, that might be true with most men. But when you get to the verses, the verses aren't boring. That's why I put like 30 of them in each sermon. And I'm not kidding you. I count them. And I try to get to all of them. But I, I don't know that I've ever been up here and have been less than 20 uh, cross-references, especially on a Sunday morning. Anyhow, Jeremiah 2, your own wickedness will correct you. And your backsliding will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken Yahweh your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord Yahweh of hosts. Man, just what language that is. It's just, you know, it is a bitter and evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord. And the fear of God is not in you. The Holy One, it says here, of Israel, in verse 4. Holiness is the voice of God's heart. It's purity. And it comes to us. And the standard never lowers. But the mercy endures forever. And that is, of course, our escape hatch, without which we would be doomed. If, if you should mark iniquity, the psalmist said, who would prevail? You can't. You, if God marked every sin, I, 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 we'd be all toast. Just one drive out the parking lot, and you'd be done. You know, if you're like me, um, <laughs> I, I can't wait to get on the road and there's nobody else there. It's like, ooh, not going to sin today. <laughs> okay, that's a little hyperbole, but there's some truth in it. Uh, anyway, coming back to uh, where we are, the holiness of God stands in contrast to the impurity of man. And this is a phrase that's used 30 times, uh, 25 times by Isaiah, 30 times in Scripture. So he's the one that really uses They have turned away backward. And so you, here you see all these people walking backwards from God. Um, uh, that's not true to the statement. They've turned and walked away. But let's have them walk backwards. Um, verse 5. Why should you be stricken again? Will you revolt more and more? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. God gives man, he reasons. He calls, you know, what did God say to Cain? If you do good, you know, will you not, will it not go well with you? But if not, sin lies at the door. He's reasoning with Cain. It, it was wasted on Cain. When he says, come, let's reason. God treats human beings with respect, regardless of how they treat him, he still offers this, extends this respect. And we look at this generation today that is so mixed up with sin. They're, 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 they think they're woke, but they're dead. They're dead in trespasses and sin. They're, they're not awake. They're the opposite. But Satan has told them they are. And after all, they don't believe in Satan. And uh, they are lost, and yet God still treats them with respect by saying, come, let's reason this through. You know, well, anyway, verse 5, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. 
The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. You are a train wreck. The nation suffered because of sin. You will revolt more and more. Incorrigible. You couldn't change them. This, this is what Paul said to the Corinthians. There was an element there, that just a heartbreaking element of churchgoers. And Paul says, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. It is never fun to be not loved. It is never a joy to pour yourself, invest yourself into someone, and they ain't. They don't, you know. And that's what God was saying about the, the, the children, the corruptors. And uh, so we have to have a response to that. We don't just read this and go, oh, man, this is terrible. This is my life. You can't stop there. You, you got fine. If I'm going out, I'm taking a bunch of devils with me. It's got to be that kind of attitude. Would you, would you say, any, would you disagree? Don't, don't do it now. Because <laughs> then you'll be recorded being wrong. Uh, but, I mean, what, what should our response be? And I, I, I do this in my life. It's like, you know, Lord, I feel like Solomon sometimes. Vanity, it's all vanity. It was a waste. And I can feel the Lord saying, ah, don't go there. Because you know you're wrong. I know I'm wrong. But it feels good sometimes to be wrong. Does it not? No, no. You guys just never get in the flesh. It just never, yeah. I just, I'm going to follow you home and see. Anyway, coming back to this. <laughs> Verse, verse 6, we got to hurry up here. For the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises, putrefying sores, they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Well, well that's a pretty, that's just a perfect environment for gangrene. <laughs> this is terrible. Uh, and fortunately, not the whole message of the prophet. There's so much good coming. But he said, you know, we got to get the business first about you people. Um, I, I tell you, sometimes I want to spend the whole day on my knees praying. I can't. And I don't know that God has ever called me to that. But you just sometimes think about what's happening to Christianity. If I go on the Internet and read something or watch what they're doing next, I don't walk away encouraged. Um, the encouragements to me, some of them are just their false encouragements. They all whip you up, but it's not true. And they come and they go. And you look back, you say, five years ago, when they were doing this thing, where are they now? Where, where are the 40 days? You remember that 40 day thing? It was supposed to change your life? The only thing that's changed my life is the Bible. And that has met a lot of resistance, too. That hasn't been a smooth fit, uh, it's been a rocky road. So, um, you learn after a while, you know, the things that, again, what matters is thus says the Lord and what I do with that. That is really the pleasant part of maturing in Christ. And, you know, in Christ, you watch how he rolled through Israel and you just, man, what poise, what maturity. He never was off balance. He never got whipped up into something. You know, Lazarus is, is sleeping. Well, he's dead, but he doesn't get emotional about that. He has to tell them uh, he's dead, and uh, but we are going to go there anyway. And he doesn't tell anybody what he's going to do. And he says, "Roll away the stone." Well, no, we did, there's a stench by now. Roll away the stone. <laughs> and, then, and then what does he do? Boom! And you just I, mean, I, I, I want that. I want to be like Paul and Peter, who don't seem carried away by well, Peter did for a long time. But once he's older, he, he's not carried away anymore. 
he's, you know, he's got that poise. And I, I think we should be shooting for that as Christians. Anyway, I believe in the local church. I really do. And uh, anything that messes with the role of the local church is, to me, an opponent of what Christ is, is about. He died for the church. He bought it with his blood. And I fear that we are becoming more a remnant than ever. And I remember in my early days coming in touch with Calvary Chapel, it was just such a blessing. It was just so many solid Calvaries out there and so many great fellowships. And it doesn't seem that way anymore. It could be, you know, me, I thought, but no, that couldn't be. Um, so, I, you know, each you got to figure it out. But anyhow, coming back to this, he says, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, spiritually sick and unsightly, just as the devil would have it. Just what he wants. Maybe that's a good way to f- get your bearings. Is, it, is this wrong? Well, what would Satan do? Instead of saying, what would Jesus do? Because I can't do what Jesus can do. But I can know what Satan wants to do. That's pretty easy. Uh, believe it or not, it comes. it's like an actor. You know, any actor can play a villain. Have you noticed that? Like, man, he's a good villain. They're all good at being villains. And I think it's because the heart is dark and it comes easy. And, uh, you know, you want to have someone play a good boy and it doesn't always... I mean, there are some actors that just can't be good people in, in character. All right, coming back to this, because I can see that I've lost you. The, the people that he dealt with, they didn't care too much because they were doing pretty good. They were prospering. They have, he continues here in verse 6, they have not been closed up or bound. Secondary complications, uh, damage from, due to neglect or soothed with oil. There was no one caring for them or there was no care taking place, even though, as the prophet is implying, care was at their fingertips. Um, just like many churchgoers, the Bible is at their fingertips. They will not use it. Verse 7 your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. If these people came to church to hear the preacher say what they wanted to say, it was all wasted. But if they came listening for what God might want to say to them, they would do well. And that's true to this day. People go to church, they're expecting the pastor to say this, that, and the other. And uh, I think those are the ones cheating themselves. I think when you go to the church, you're, you're to go for a sermon as an empty vessel and just let the Lord fill you. And uh, I think we would all be better. I approach my study that way. I don't approach the studies of Isaiah. I'm very familiar with this book. Why bother studying? I dig right back into it. Uh, and I love it. Verse 7, Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. Well, nobody wants strangers to overthrow them. Uh, the Assyrians, of course, had already marched through Second uh, Kings 18. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So these are the people that he's, he's preaching to. Why did, they, why did they lose the cities? Because they, they turned their back on the Lord. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate. Yeah, but the Assyrians are in their cities. 
looting. It is as though God is saying to the Jews, just look at you. You weren't called to do this. Can God say that to some churches? Look at you. What are you doing? You call yourself a church. You've got the cross on the outside. But I am nowhere inside. And thus, Laodicea. Well, verse 8. So the daughter of Zion is left in a booth in a vineyard, as in a hut, in a garden of cucumbers, as besieged as a besieged city. I mean, every time I read that cucumber thing, I want cucumbers. Uh, personification of Jerusalem, God is saying, you're my delicate child. And again, you, 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 it's like you, you're, an under, you've, you're an underachiever because you chose that route. You're isolated, you're flimsy, because you don't want me. And therefore, you're not a castle. Verse 9, unless Yahweh of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Well, uh, that small remnant, the, it, the, it's a minority that's left over uh, after the majority has uh, been used or destroyed. And it is a doctrine taught by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai. They all talk about the remnant. Because without it, uh, there would be no more Israel. Israel repeatedly came that close to being no more. To this day, they, they have encountered such things in their history. Anyway, these did not survive because they were a minority, but in spite of being a minority, the hand of God protected them. We would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah, decadent cities of antiquity. The scoffers today (coughs) (coughs) I hope that's not what you remember after tonight. (coughs) Anyway, uh, the scoffers that... Uh, despise this proverbial expression for depravity from antiquity, as I mentioned. Uh, They try to laugh at those who do not laugh at sin. God will have the last laugh, but it won't be funny. Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Yahweh shall hold them in derision. And Sodom is forever marked as a city with the wrong lifestyle. And there are those with that identical lifestyle today. They hate being reminded of it. But they can't undo the history. So I said I'd close with Ecclesiastes. And here in the 8th chapter. And again, I, I think Solomon is, just has a really, uh, you know, boiled down approach to life at this point. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times. And his days are prolonged. Yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. And so there he inserts the importance of, of just being rightly related to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father... We've just scratched the surface of what you have to say through your prophet Isaiah. And it is uh, quite remarkable. 
And we pray you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.